0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Dwayne Quasey Wright, Visiting Assistant Professor of Law at Savannah Law School. We will discuss his scholarship on race-conscious admissions, especially his dissertation, An Instrumental Case Study of the Diversity Culture of a Predominantly White Law School. Welcome to the show, Dwayne.
1: Welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brian. Um, Thank you for having me, um, Professor Fry. I've been a fan of the show uh, almost since its inception, and I think you do a wonderful job, and I am blessed and privileged for you to have me on.
0: Well, thank you so much. It's (laughs) really flattering for me to hear that, and um, I gotta say, I really enjoyed reading Reading your work, um, including your your dissertation, which was a f- really fascinating, both theoretical and sort of empirical qualitative study of diversity culture in in a law school, and I was hoping we could start the conversation by you kind of laying the the groundwork for the the terms on which we can understand some of the issues that you're you're grappling with in in your work so you talk about race conscious admissions a lot of people often use the term like affirmative action as well and I was wondering if you could talk about the relationship between those two concepts or ways of articulating similar concepts and sort of also sort of the different perspectives on the nature of the problem or how to think about the problem that you outline in your paper.
1: Yeah, so no problem, no problem. Well, again, thank you for having me on. And um, uh, I think where I probably best should start is by giving two premises in which this work, this particular dissertation, and my body of research begin. Um, the first premise for your listeners um, is the premise that racism still plays a part in America and that if racism didn't play a part in the actual outcomes today of America, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, the second premise from which you have to understand where the work goes through is what I call the problem of proxy. And the problem of proxy is one in which um, if you graduate from a Harvard if you graduate from a Penn State where I got my PhD, if you graduate from a University of Kentucky, Brian, where you are at, um, your outcomes are different than if you graduate from uh, what some would call lesser schools. And if we didn't have the problem of proxy, uh, there wouldn't be uh, a need for this conversation we're having today. Mm -hmm. So two premises that I think your listeners need to understand, and we can argue about those, but where I come from in doing the work. Um, so I wanted to make sure I made that clear up front, um, sure. so the syllogism, so the logic flows for your listeners. Um, to your question directly, though, um, affirmative action is one of the most contested policies, one of the most, un- ah, I was going to say m- misunderstood, um, but I, I, what I will say is incorrectly understood, and I'll explain the difference, uh, one of the most incorrectly understood um, functions and policies in American life. Um, So let's just go ahead and take the words, affirmative action. What does it mean to do affirmative action? Well, it means to affirmatively do something that's an action or a policy. And it comes from a set of policies that actually um, theoretically and conceptually go back to Reconstruction, so right after the Civil War, to place the formerly um, enslaved people into a better Format. So historians will know about the Freedmen's Bureau. Mm -hmm. Um, Some other people will know about federally funded HBCUs. These are all affirmative actions um, to give um, the former enslaved people the right to vote, the right to an education, et cetera, et cetera. What we know today as affirmative action, um, ironically enough, comes out of the mind of a conservative administration. It was the Nixon administration that Mm -hmm. first started doing affirmative policies to help um, African Americans, who at this point were long since free from bondage. But the effects of not just the Civil War, but the Jim Crow era and everything that came after that, all the way into Brown versus Board of Ed um, and the Civil Rights Movement were still in effect. And what these were, were actions, affirmative. So not just not doing something or not just negative law, which prevented the government from discriminating or prevented private people, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, from discriminating, but affirmative action, positive actions to try to pique these people who are American citizens into equal place. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand that's what I say about affirmative action. Some of these, and these were first actually, um, the genesis of them comes from employment making sure that if you're employing one person versus another, that you're not considering race. And the genesis of what we know as affirmative action comes from employment, such cases as Weigert, such cases as um, uh, uh, Carson, such cases as Adoran, which we won't talk about today because they don't uh, affect higher ed specifically, but form the analysis of affirmative action. Mm -hmm. What I study specifically is what I would call a branch of affirmative action, which is race-conscious admissions. One type of action that a government entity, a state actor, might take to mitigate the effects of slavery, Jim Crow, et cetera, et cetera. And what race-conscious admissions is, is simply the use of race as a factor amongst other factors in determining who gets admitted to mostly a public school? And hopefully we'll get into the case that just uh, um, gaveled down of the Harvard University, which actually applies to private schools. But when we think about race-conscious admissions, because the 14th Amendment applies mostly to state actors, we're thinking about public schools. So i make the distinction between the universe of affirmative actions, which could happen, and race-conscious admissions.
0: Okay so I understand so it's sort of a subset then of the concept the broader concept of affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Yes sir. Okay. Okay. So one thing that I thought was really helpful for me in your dissertation was the way you broke down sort of perspectives on race conscious admission into sort of three categories. And I was wondering if you could just briefly describe those three categories and sort of where mm-hmm. they're coming from.
1: Yes. Yeah, so this um Found its way into a dissertation. It's what um, myself and another researcher who um, was an advisor to me on a master's thesis that I wrote. Another JD PhD called Dr. Liliana Garces, who's out at the University of Texas, developed jointly. And it's a trichotomy of perspectives, not just on race conscious admissions, but really on a perspective of how we advance in society on the race question in general. And this Mm -hmm. trichotomy has three buckets, if you would. Um, The first bucket, let's call it colorblindness. And what colorblindness says, and um, before I may get criticized, uh, I'm going to describe each of these concepts in the best light possible to the people that advocate the concepts. I'm not supporting at this point any concept. Okay. But colorblindness basically says, in order to get beyond race, we need to simply and utterly Stop using race. The best description of this that legal scholars might understand is Chief Justice Roberts' famous line in Parents Involved versus Public, um, in the case uh, Parents Involved it has to do with uh, public uh, voluntary seg- desegregation plans in um, Louisville and Seattle, in which Chief Justice Roberts said the way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discrimination on the basis of race. Colorblindness says that we should just simply stop using race. We should erase race from our thinking and from our dichotomy. We should simply not use race any longer. Brian, when I look at you, I do not recognize you as a white person. When I look in the mirror, I do not recognize Dr. Wright as a black person. There is no race. Let's erase race into out of existence in America. That's the concept of colorblindness. Okay. Okay. The second point, and we're kind of going in a spectrum here, so the neutral point, uh, the middle point, maybe not neutral, (laughs) is race neutrality, right? And this concept, I will say, in the legal realm is birthed um, from the mind of our uh, former Justice Kennedy, and it says that we need to make sure we're only using race when 100% race is necessary. So in order to use race as a government entity, you must prove to a fact finder, to the general public, if you're talking about politics, that you couldn't have gotten your end by using race in some other manner. There are many advocates of this policy which aren't necessarily opponents of race conscious admissions, but proponents of using something different, such as socioeconomic status. One of the most famous on the progressive side Um, we'll go uh, place not race Cheryl Cashin who's a law professor in um, Georgetown um, Law Center so that's the race neutral bucket only use race when race is the last resort and the last one is the color conscious bucket Uh, and the color conscious bucket says that no we need to use race it rejects color blindness as both non-practical and nonsensical Um, And that we cannot not recognize race because race, even though a social construct is real in America, Mm. it rejects race neutrality as simply a way to try to get to colorblindness one day. And, Mm. you know, we do not need to only use socioeconomic status because that ignores a lot of the salience that whiteness holds today. It ignores such papers as whiteness is property, Cheryl Harris. Um, That famous UCLA Law Review um, article, it it ignores white privilege um, as it exists in America today. So the color-conscious area was 100% a pro-race-conscious bucket. Um, It advocates the use of race um, to both increase with ominous term diversity Mm. and, and this is important outside the legal context, remedy the past effects and the current situations that those past effects create of racism, sexism, homophobia, etc.
0: Okay. Okay. So that's really helpful. Um, and I'm wondering if you could also spend a few minutes, and there's obviously a lot of backstory here, but just a few minutes sort of explaining where we're at and what, Uh, higher education institutions what law schools are actually doing and permitted really more importantly permitted to do in the context of race conscious admissions
1: okay so we need to unfortunately go back to richard nixon who um really inherits the presidency because of uh, the vietnam war from lbj lbj gave that famous speech at howard um um, that kind of started off affirmative action. And we go to a case called um, Regents of California versus Baki. Prior to Regents of California versus Baki, but a little bit after Brown. So I would say about 55 to um, mid-70s, 70s, um, universities were using um, race conscious submissions and affirmative actions to try to diversify um, their classes. Okay. Um, almost in a unmitigated way, unmitigated by the law. One such policy was the University of California Davis Medical School, which had um a certain amount of slots. I think it was 18, it might have been 17 out of a hundred reserved for what I call minority Back then they would probably call underrepresented individuals. Okay. Right? And there was a white individual, white male called Alan Blocky, who had twice been rejected under this system. And he claimed that this was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, as well as Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. For your listeners, that may not be lawyers, that may be mumbo-jumbo, but it becomes important (laughs) later on. Um, So we had nine justices on the court. We had um, a separate opinion, four justices um, who back then would be considered, I guess, conservative, but Justice Stevens was in that block. Wrote one opinion. Four justices that even today would be considered liberal wrote another opinion. And the opinion that went out, the opinion that became good law, was the sole opinion of Justice Lewis Powell. And this opinion said that you could not have a quota system. And since that day, quotas, set aside, or anything that even looks like a quota, Brian, is not allowed in college admissions. You okay. cannot say that if um Let's use a public school, the University of Massachusetts. We have a thousand students to let in. We need to make sure that a hundred of those students are African American because 10% of the state of Massachusetts, I'm making these numbers up, yeah. are African American. <laughs> okay. That is uh, illegal or unconstitutional because illegal is a kind of a different concept in the law. That would be unconstitutional. So, since Baki quotas, and Lewis Powell's sole opinion quotas are unconstitutional. What is allowed and what still is allowed today is to use race as a factor, of a factor, for the purpose of increasing diversity in your classroom. So if you feel that the conversation in your classroom is in such that certain views, certain mindsets, certain experiences are not represented, then you can use race as a factor in your admissions policy for the purposes of affecting that conversation. That was kind of a law back with Baki, but like I just said, that's not a majority opinion there. Hmm. Um, there are nine justices in the Supreme Court. You need five, as Justice Brennan famously always told us, to make law. Law was technically not made in the Bakke case, but everyone filed it as it was law. Fast forward now to the early 2000s, and you have a case that comes out of the University of Michigan, particularly the law school, which is Grutter. The court's composition has changed. Um, It's, I think, you know, identifiably more conservative. And many people think that You know, well, the question is since Baki was a 414 decision, is that even good law? And what Mm. is the current status of affirmative action? And in her opinion, and this is a 5 4 opinion, so it actually solidifies Baki in 2013. Justice O'Connor solidifies the rule of Baki and this diversity rationale, which I just described as a compelling governmental interest for using race in college admissions. So Mm. again, um, Justice O'Connor does not go back to the time before Bakke and says we can use quotas. Quotas are still unconstitutional. But if a college can show that they need more students and the language that comes out of Grutter and this is very important for we to understand is the language of that of critical mass. Mm. A critical mass or a certain number of students in order for all students not just the minoritized students which are trying to recruit to get to this critical mass, but all students can get the educational benefits that flow from diversity. Um, Those benefits were described in that opinion as reduced racial stereotypes, cross-racial interaction, et cetera, et cetera. So that comes out in Greta in 2003. Let's fast forward again, because I know, you know, time is limited. So we're going to Uh skip over. Whole bunch of other political things and get to a case that actually started, ironically enough, in 2008. It was filed around the same time we elected our first black president, President Obama, and that's the case of Abigail Fisher. So, Edward Blum, who um, is a conservative activist against race conscious admissions, recruited Miss um, Fisher, and Miss Fisher was in the University of Texas. And at this time, the University of Texas for reasons I skipped over, has a top 10% plan, which the top 10% of any, of every, really, public high school in Texas, you, if you were in that top 10%, got uh, first admissions to any school in Texas, and of course, the marquee school is the University of Texas at Austin. Okay. However, after Grutter, with the top 10% plan still in place because it's in there based on legislation, the University of Texas again started using race in the constitutional way that Bakke and Greta allowed. So okay. this factor of a factor of a factor. So with the Fisher case, and there are actually two cases, um, what both Fisher 1 and Fisher 2 were questioning was: if this top 10% plan, which gives you a certain amount of diversity, is necessary, why do you then need, and this goes back to the race neutral bucket, Why do you then need to use race at all? You're getting some diversity, maybe enough diversity from the top 10% plan. Why do you still need to use race as a factor of this race neutral means the top 10% plan gives you um, this way? So the first Fisher case um, really didn't give us an opinion. The second Fisher case is one of the last cases um, on affirmative action and Justice Kennedy, who actually dissented. From O'Connor's opinion, in Greta wrote, and he reaffirms the rule that started in Bakke, that was codified in Greta, and now re solidified in Fisher that you can use race as a factor or factor for the purposes of increasing the diversity rationale, increasing the diversity of conversation, of thought, of experience in college admissions. And that is the current law. That public schools are under. Okay. Now, because of Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, I told you, you're listening, this will become important later. Yeah. It's almost 99.9% sure that private schools, by virtue of taking federal dollars, over 90%, even at Harvard, of students take federal funds through federal financial aid, mm. has to follow the same laws as our public schools. So really, this conversation we're having today should be fought unless something changes drastically to govern both private and public schools.
0: Okay. Okay. So if I understand it correctly, then, the way the law stands right now is that schools can engage in race-conscious admissions in a limited fashion for the purpose of increasing diversity by reaching a critical mass of underrepresented or minoritized students. What is a critical mass?
1: And there, my friend, is the correct question. Um, So there's been social science research on this. So a critical mass, and I wrote about this in my dissertation, comes from not legal language, it really comes from scientific language, right? You need a critical mass to get an explosion in quantum physics you know, critical mass of a certain amount of um, uh, business leaders in order to do, you know, a certain deal. So, you know, it's a quantitative measure that could only be measured qualitatively in the law. Mm. So, <laughs> the, the, first of all, it's contextual. So what a critical mass in order, and again, what, what, what really your listeners really need to understand is that the goal in and of itself is not a critical mass. A critical mass is necessary to get to the goal. Uh-huh. So, if I'm, so, Brian, if you're really hungry, you know, you've been riding all day, you've been doing podcasts, and you're trying to get home. And, you know, you rush out of the office over there in Lexington and you get to your house and you realize, damn, I don't have my key. Let's think of the critical mass as the key. OK, but the goal is food. <laughs> <laughs> you can just go down the street and probably get some food. The only situation in which make you not having that key critical is if the only food in Lexington, Kentucky, for some reason, was in your house. Okay. So that's the situation that kind of exists. The food is diversity. The food is having an African-American Republican, so the students in a class can know that not all Black people are Democrats. The food is having an African-American that can speak in a criminal procedure class. So you can know, yes, I grew up in the hood, but I was not a gangster. That's the food. And the key to get into the door to get to that food, which has only existed in the house, is critical mass.
0: Okay, okay. So
1: how do we get that key? What exactly is that key? Truly and utterly depends on the situation. Just like a key, there is no skeleton key for critical mass. It truly depends on the lock and the situation. So what critical mass is in Lexington, Kentucky will not be critical mass in Savannah, Georgia, not be critical mass in Cambridge, Massachusetts will definitely not be critical mass in Los Angeles.
0: Okay. Okay. So I think I understand the the sort of the instrumentality, as it were, of what's going on here a little bit better. Um, And there was a another dichotomy that you discussed in your dissertation that was really helpful for me in understanding the nature of what's at stake and that's where you talked about the difference between structural and interactional diversity i was wondering if you could explain what the difference between those two is and sort of how that factors into how law schools are currently thinking about uh, diversity, as well as how it ought to factor into how schools mm-hmm. think about diversity.
1: Yeah, sure. So the conflict of structural and interactual diversity really goes back to Sylvia Hurtado, who I think is still at uh, UCLA, and uh, Patricia Gorin, who was an expert witness in the University of uh, Michigan Law School's case, um, as well as work by other people like Mitchell Chang as well. And the way I use it in the dissertation is I say, legally, the compelling governmental interest, Brian, and you'll appreciate that word, and the lawyers on your um, listeners will appreciate that word, is not critical mass. It's the educational benefits that come from critical mass. But critical mass in and of itself is necessary but not sufficient to get to those benefits. So what do I mean by that? Critical mass represents structural diversity, or numerical diversity, or as um, my friend Carly Ford at Penn State has described it as cosmetic diversity. (laughs) A hundred people in a class, there are 10 black people, 15 females, and the rest are white men. Okay. Okay. In order to increase our structural diversity, let's get five more African American students of any gender, and it goes from 10 to 15. That's structural diversity, and that increase gives us an increase in structural diversity. However, if you read truly Gretter's decision, Baky's decision, and definitely Fisher, um, the goal, the legal goal is not structural diversity, but the legal goal is interactional diversity. Now, here is where being an interdisciplinary researcher really comes in and where I get really excited. The research, the education research says that any benefits that come from diversity, first you need structure. Meaning if there are zero out of those 100 that are African-American, we cannot get to interactional diversity. Now, I'll get to what interactional diversity is in a second. So you first need, it's a necessary component to have that structural diversity, but it's not sufficient to get to the benefits that come from diversity. Again, cross-racial interaction, reduction of stereotypes. What you need to get to those benefits, Brian, is interactional diversity, meaning that you need students inside and outside of the classroom having cross-racial interactions, both academically and socially. Currently, the focus on affirmative action, race-conscious missions is on structural diversity Mm. and numbers, quantitative. What we are ignoring, and which is sad that we're doing it both on the conservative and the liberal side, is interactual diversity. What's actually happening on your campus right now that justifies you needing more African-American students? What's actually not happening in your classrooms right now uh, from the professor's standpoint that justifies you needing more African-American students, more Latino students, more, you know, Asian-American students that happen to be of a certain sexual orientation? You understand? Mm. So that's interactional diversity. Are people of different views interacting with each other? Structural diversity is simply the number. So from 10 to 15 students, we have an increase in African-American racial structural diversity out of 100 at a school. But then, are you measuring interactional diversity? What exactly are those five students adding to the conversation? Or are they being isolated? Are they not being called upon Mm. in a classroom? Are the white students not listening to them in a classroom? So you can increase structural diversity and have no increase in your interactional diversity.
0: Right. So if I understand what you're saying correctly, kind of in the broader paradigm, then, is what you're saying is sort of the premises that a lot of schools are using race conscious admissions to, you know, achieve some degree of structural diversity, which may or may not constitute a critical mass, however you choose to define that in context, mm-hmm. but they aren't actually using that critical mass to achieve the benefits that um, could flow from, from that diversity, is that is that well? well I don't, I don't, I don't want to condemn
1: in mm. a broad statement like that. Schools that might actually be doing it, I mm. think I could say this without question, based on my research and based on the review of the literature. Most schools aren't doing it, mm. and a vast number of the schools that aren't doing it don't even know that they should be doing it.
0: Okay, okay, <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, um. <clears throat> given the limitations on time and how interesting your actual study was, I think we should shift gears and maybe you could talk a little bit about the actual qualitative study that you did sort of, what was the question you were asking? How did you conduct the study and, and what did you learn through the study that you conducted?
1: Mm -hmm. So, a um, little bit of context, because without context, I don't think qualitative research actually works. Okay. So I, I, I first began this kind of questioning way back in 2012, where I first started law school. And I eventually wrote a master's thesis upon graduating law school um, to get a master's that I got with that degree about um, affirmative action and didn't have to do with race. So I wrote, wrote about Um, gender, and sexual orientation affirmative action, which your lawyers will know go under a different test than strict scrutiny. Um, I continued that research, um, and when I was asked to come up after I decided to get a Ph.D. with a dissertation topic, I, I, I was no longer very much interested in critical mass because I realized that was a morally bankrupt concept, or at least an intellectually bankrupt concept. I was very disheartened with the diversity rationale as a whole. And uh, Harvard researcher Natasha Warrico talks about the uh, way that the diversity rationale commodifies um, minoritized students in a way that's not productive and is crazily neoliberal. Uh, so what I wanted to know was, OK, let me take a school that is affirmatively using race conscious admissions, which means that if it were ever sued, it would defend itself by saying we are trying to get a critical mass. See that school in mid-class through that process, whether it's a critical mass or not, I, I, I was less interested in measuring that. What exactly happens at that school? So the research question was, how does diversity work at a predominantly white um, law school? Um, so what I did was I observed the class. Um, it was a 1L class on a topic that potentially could have some race conversations, criminal law. Mm. And I combined that data set with um, several hours. Um, It came up to, you know, uh, over 100 hours of observational research. Um, But I limited that observational research to in the physical building of this predominantly white law school. So I didn't want to move out um, and the, the case study. Um, to go into social settings. And the reason I didn't want to do that was I purposely wanted to know that if things were happening outside the academic building, that it's something that I may want to research but was limited to research because that told me something about the academic building, right? Mm -hmm. What exactly things that students didn't want to happen in the academic building or conversations that were happening outside the academic building and I wasn't privy to. So I showed some uh, research discipline And I limited it to the academic building and to the observation of this classroom and to interviews of um, the dean at this particular law school, her assistant deans, the um, admissions at particular law school, um, and many students as well. And predominantly what I found were uh, three things. One, there's a lot of ahistorical thinking around admissions policies um, in a law school. Okay. What do I mean by ahistorical, very few of the administrators, but also very few of the students. And what shocked me was even the most progressive students, whether they were minoritized or not, did not know about the culture and policy and history of racial exclusion at the school they were at. Mm. All the conversation around admissions was forward thinking. In 2020, we want to look like this. In 2018, we had this amount of structural diversity. In 2019, we want this amount of structural diversity. But there was very little conversation about, well, okay, uh, can anyone here tell me, when was the first African-American admitted to uh, Granite State University, which is the Mm pseudonym I use for um, my school? Mm No one knew. Not even the African-American students knew. One student told me, straight up, Brian, and said, I don't even want to know, because that's just going to make my situation worse. Wow. <laughs> so it was kind of like a blissful ignorance. So the mm-hmm. ahistorical nature really stood out to me. Another concept that I'm developing that came out of there is the, what I call the relative proximate view of diversity. And it really complicates this situation of critical mass. And That's why I told your listeners critical mass is contextual. So what does the relative proximate view of diversity mean? It means that I interviewed in this particular school a lot of white students that visibly saw that in their classroom, there were only four African-Americans, whether it be male or female. But because this was the most diverse environment, education-wise, they had ever been in, they experienced that as a tidal wave of diversity to use a word that was given to me really yes well yes and, and if you think about it just from a human standpoint so you're a great researcher and an excellent scholar and outstanding lawyer. but if you shut all that off right <laughs> and you just say well you know if i you know never saw Martians and i walk into a room and there are 15 martians <laughs> mm-hmm. how are you going to experience that room and yeah. of course, I'm not comparing students of color at all to Martians. What I'm saying is that for a lot of white students, even when they get to law school, it's almost that which they are experiencing, mm-hmm. that they haven't experienced anyone in the K-12 through 12 level. We don't even have the time to get into that. Mm-hmm. They haven't experienced anyone at the uh, undergraduate level. That's why we need policies like Fisher. And then when they've only experienced two or three in the law school classroom, they're like, oh, not only is this diverse enough, this might be true with diverse. You want five. Yeah, <laughs> I'm used to zero.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's mm-hmm. a relevant, proximate uh, view of diversity. And the other thing, since this is a legal podcast that I'll leave your listeners with, is that I realized that a lot of schools, and I won't indict the school that I did this research at, and I'll just keep it general and say a lot of schools are opening themselves up for legal litigation by only focusing on structural diversity. Okay. There are a lot of schools who admissions policies, and these, most of the time, the people that run admissions at law school are lawyers. <laughs> They're not calling over to general counsel's office. They might have to in a certain standpoint, but they know the law. They know Gutter. They know um, Baki. They know Fisher. Um, but they still focus, even using instant, um, individualized review, on um, structural diversity. And there's no attempt, um, Professor Frye, to measure interactional diversity. And, you know, some of it is laziness. Some of Mm -hmm. it is, this is too hard. And some of it is just a complete and utter misreading and misunderstanding of the jurisprudence that surrounds race-conscious admissions.
0: Right, because if I understand it correctly, I mean, in a sense, it's sort of the implication is that they're obligated to think about, about interactional diversity insofar as otherwise it's just a... It's, you know, they're not really even trying to achieve what they're supposed to be doing.
1: They're not living up to the compelling governmental interest. So, and again, for your listeners that are listening, I'm not advocating this. I'm now simply trying to educate on this. Hmm. If you are using race and college admissions, you are using it. And the only constitutional way currently, and I would say with the change in the Supreme Court, definitely the only constitutional way going that you can use race in college admissions is for the purposes of impacting the conversation in the classroom. That's the only way. Race is such an abhorrent classification that we say it meets strict scrutiny. And the only way you can use race, and, and again, unfortunately or fortunately, this is to benefit minoritized individuals or to hurt minoritized individuals. The only way you can use race is to impact that conversation in the classroom. So if your college, your university, your law school, your med school is using race and it's saying, yeah, we're trying to get a critical mass and we're measuring a critical mass, we have a definition of critical mass, but there's no effort to measure the impact in the classroom, you're giving these conservatives such as Edward Blum exactly what they want and that's a target on your back.
0: One of the things I really found helpful in your dissertation as well was the way you used kind of particular stories or anecdotes to illustrate some of the ideas you were talking about. And I was wondering if you could share like one or two of those that you think were maybe like particularly helpful in sort of kind of understanding the problematic, as it were, of interactional diversity.
1: Yeah, so I, I, the, at the particular school I did my dissertation, they have a class on um, um, higher education law, maybe education law more broadly, um, but this particular topic they were talking about this day um, was a higher education law topic, and this was not the class I observed, but there was an African-American female who, upon hearing about my research, sought me out and described to me a situation. In which she was in a classroom, it wasn't a large classroom, maybe about 15 students. And there was an older white female, someone she did not know personally. And this is key to my research methodology. and to exactly what's going on. She did not know this person personally, had no desire to learn about this person personally. But it was a colleague. It was someone who, as far as she knows, one day will be a lawyer in um, one state of America. And they were discussing blackface. And for your viewers that don't know, blackface is the practice, Brian, of um, non-black people, whether it be white or Latino, putting on black paint to look like black people. And there have been several controversies about this. The University of Oregon Law had a controversy in which a professor did it. Um, There was a particular, several schools that have had controversies about white fraternities and sororities doing it. So, at this point, which was about hmm, a year or two years ago when this conversation was happening, it was well known that this was a sticky subject for certain minoritized individuals. And it was after the class um, where the student um, said that she refused after a while to engage in a conversation with this young woman. And I asked her why. And she gave me this quote that really stuck with me. And she said, I am willing to argue. With someone that disagrees with my ideas. I will not argue with someone that disagrees with my existence. And really, what I took that to mean was there has to be a baseline of respect for me to even engage in a First Amendment legal type of argument. And what that was, this was early on in my research, and this theme kept coming up over and over again, not just for minoritized individuals, but for the Federalist Society, for, there weren't a lot of students that actively supported the President of the United States um, at this school, but for the few students that did, it was a lack of engagement in the classroom because they had predetermined, for good or bad reasons, that the person was attacking them and not their ideas.
0: So dwayne that that's really super helpful, um, and I was wondering sort of in closing, if you could make a few brief observations based on your research about sort of what schools can and maybe should do to think about engaging more um, more effectively with achieving forms of interactional diversity in law schools.
1: Yes, well, thank you for that so um well, let me say this, you know, it starts to go back. Let's start at the, you know, where, let's end at the beginning, right? Um, the first two is accept my two premises as fact and start making policies from there. That if you think, and maybe you don't think, but if you think that racism, sexism, homophobia, let's stick to racism because we're doing race-conscious admission has an effect on society, then you should be crafting emission policies which show you think that. <laughs> you understand and, and then you know you can't just in your admissions policies look for the students who have the indicia of a certain type of merit which only describes white supremacy so there are some schools in America that are like look we, we care about diversity we care about race as long as they come from Ivy League schools. we care about diversity we care about race as long as they have a certain GPA in LSAT now I do agree that as a predictor there's a certain lsat score that you don't want to admit a student because you don't want to put them in a particularly poor situation but i don't agree with the mismatch theory of one richard sander in ucla and i think schools need to start thinking about the independent merit of diversity the second thing i would really recommend for schools to do is think about intentional affirmative ways to increase interactional diversity one way is simply surveying your faculty. You know, the many faculty meetings, Brian, <laughs> that you know, that you attend, and people will attend, and, you know, the things you talk about. Two things you can do. Simply have a conversation about what conversations, what perspectives, what views are not coming up in the classroom, whether that be a torch class, or a contract class, or gospel to a race class, or a constitutional law class, because that's going to give your admissions people data to go out and justify why we need to increase structural diversity to impact interactional diversity. The other thing that faculty can do is kind of like a no-curriculum review. And that's what aren't we teaching at this school and why aren't we teaching it? Are we not including Cheryl Harris's whiteness is property as required reading in our property classes? If so, why are we not doing that? You know, maybe you maybe your property professors just don't agree with that concept. But many faculty have not had a conversation about that. And the last thing I will say is that you can do what a lot of deans in the country are doing right now. And that's, you know, money talks, set aside some money for your um, organizations, whether it be affinity or not to actually interact. Um, There was one law school that came out of my research that while they fund every um, organization on an equal setting, they have a certain pot of money that's set aside only for people to work in collaborative events or course ideologies, the ACU with the Federalist Society, the Students for Trump, if your law school has that, with Falsa or Lulsa you know, or you know something else like that, you know, the Christian legal society without law. And I think that actually not only shows that you really care about what's really important from the jurisprudence of Goethe and Fisher International Diversity, but it shows and it tells people on the outside world. And in the inside world, in your law school community, this is what's important. A reduction, crossing over lines, and dialogues across difference. So I think if I had to only do three recommendations, those are the ones I would leave you listening with.
0: Fantastic. Well, Dwayne, this has been a great conversation. I've learned a ton from reading your work and from talking to you about it. And I really hope listeners will, will check out more of your scholarship and that your dissertation will be widely available for, for people to read shortly.
1: Oh, thank you, Brian. Thank you. And again, you know, I appreciate it. I, I find that you are an immense scholar. So, any compliment that comes from a person of your acumen um, is really humbling and true. And I just do it for the work. And I hope that anyone that's listening to this, um, if you feel like contacting me, please do. As the conversation needs to continue um, just beyond um, certain parameters. So, thank you again for the opportunity. I feel blessed. <laughs>